Good morning again. Our passage will be found in Psalm 40. If you will turn there in your Bibles or your device of choice. We are beginning an Advent series. Um, Advent means arrival. The Latin word uh, it comes from a Greek word, parousio, which means Jesus' return. It's, it's a picture of Jesus, not just his birth, but his final and ultimate return. And so the way we're going to look at it this, uh, this year, or this, yeah, this year, is we're going to do something a little different. Like last year we did the songs from Luke, like the Magnificat, right? Uh, Zechariah's Benedictus, etc. This year, since we're studying David's life, and we're looking at David the warrior poet, I thought let's look at David's poems, his psalms of waiting. So we'll be looking at those this, uh, these four weeks leading into Christmas, and it will hopefully become better at waiting. Are you all good at waiting? Raise your hand if you're a good waiter. I bet all of us have been impatient even during this very service. Right? I could call people out for making fun of songs that have too long of choruses on waiting. But I won't do it, Sam. (laughs) So, I want you to be thinking about how good you are at waiting. And we're going to look now at Psalm 40. Um, I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's going to be long. And you're going to have to wait, but you'll be okay. So here's Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so merciful. We praise You for what we just read and the truths as they are found in Your Son, Jesus. And I pray this morning that You would teach us more what it means to wait for Your arrival and to live for Your glory. Amen. How many of you like to wait? Like, of all of you, I'm the worst. You know, you're driving down the road, you know where you're going, then there's traffic. I am, my blood pressure immediately rises. Like, what's going on? Why is this here? Or you simply want to go to the post office and there's a line or the bank. I hate any of that stuff because it thwarts my plan. I have a plan, right? And then you turn the TV on and there's a news reporter showing, you know, the iPhone X coming out or the new whatever or, or Black Friday. And there's this willful line. Like, these people have chosen this. And there's that, uh, I won't call them any names, but that person at the front of the line, you know, and they're sitting there and the reporter walks up. How long have you been here? And there's a tent and chairs and blankets and like a little cooker thing and food. Oh, I've been here all week. It's wonderful. I took the week off. And you're just thinking, are you crazy? Who does that? Right? This is the one time in my entire life I will ever praise that person. Normally, I'm going to just say, they're foolish. But here's the deal. That's what waiting looks like when you're waiting for something really good, right? Our problem with waiting is we don't really know what we're waiting for usually. And when we think about Advent and the coming of Christ and and what it means that he's coming back, if we had the view that that person at the front of the line had about whatever it was around the corner, we would wait well, right? And so my goal for all of us is this Advent season, starting even this Sunday morning, that we would begin to feel that longing for the return of Christ. That that would somehow create in us a a passion and even a willingness to wait well. That's the goal. So we come to this passage in Psalm 40, very familiar. We even sang a rendition of it by you two. In the opening line, I waited patiently for the Lord. Uh, the, the actual translation there has much more to do with intensity. It's, it's repeated twice, which means intently or intensity, which are different words, or with intensity. It's not just this casual patience. It's, a, it's almost an angst type of patience, right? But what I think is interesting is the psalmist David tells us that the Lord inclined and heard his cry, inclined and heard his cry, and then he proceeds to tell us, he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. It sounds like he's been delivered, doesn't it? But when you come down to verse 13, he repeats, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. And I think what's happening in this psalm is that David realizes, while I wait for true deliverance, final deliverance, God has created a way for me to wait well in the middle of my current conflict. Right? Now, all of us are in the middle of a current conflict. Right? We all, I don't know every one of your story, but if you are a Christian and you're here this morning, your reality is at some point in your life, Jesus became who you are, your identity. You became a Christian, and you realize that you have this, you know, as Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. You have this new being about you, and yet you find out. You have to wait for his return. And the prophets, they weren't aware of that. When the prophets wrote about the coming of the Messiah, like a mount, you, you hear this illustration a lot, the mountains, 
for an explorer. The, it looks like one mountain, and then you get to the first one, and you realize there's a second one far beyond the first. And we're in that valley. We're in that waiting period. And what David shows us, I think, in this psalm is that that period of life, the one we're in until Christ returns or we go home to be with the Lord, can be glorious. And that's our goal this morning, to see that. Uh, and just to look at one verse to kind of set the tone before I dive into the different points. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, heaviness, of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I recognize something right now, that for most of you, the thought of the future glory and the thought of your current lives now, they don't seem to connect. I mean, I'm not... Maybe not all of you feel that way, but I know often in my own Christian life, I think, okay, what is what I need to do today have anything to do with Jesus' return? Like, that's so different. And yet what we see in this psalm is they actually do blend together. And the more fully I hope and wait for the eternal weight of glory, the more my momentary afflictions will make sense and I can walk in glorious ways for God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So, first of all, The biggest thing that changes for David right there in verse 3 is that God put a new song in his mouth. I love that imagery. Um, Again, if you see someone walk to the back of the line waiting for the new thing, they're upset. I thought I was going to grab that new iPhone and be back at work by one. The guy at the front of the line is cooking his burger. They're happy, right? There's a different song. That person at the front of the line is waiting, but differently. And so David reveals to us that there is this way, this reality, that when we get our perspective changed, we can have a new song in our mouth. And the first element to that is a song of praise. Uh, Do you praise God? Of course, you come in here, you sing the song, so in that sense you praise God. But what do you think about praise? We live in a world that highly values authenticity, right, and feelings, and I do. So I find it very difficult when I'm feeling one way to talk about something else, right? In fact, we would say that's inauthentic. You feel this way, you should just tell people, right? But of course we don't do that, or none of you would have a job right now. Like, your boss walks in, you know what? No, you learn to restrain. In other words, there's truths outside of your feelings, Right? And furthermore, when you praise, it has an effect of changing the way you feel. Have you ever noticed that? Like, um, you see this with children, you know, if you say, hey, smile. I refuse to smile. Come on, you have to smile. I'm not going to look at any of my children. They're not, they never do this. I never do this with my children. And then you get the half smile. The, you know, the eyes don't smile. The heart's not smiling. It's just the legal corners of the mouth went up, smile. What's going on internally is there's this reality that if I actually smile, I might feel better. Like, what if that happens? And I don't want that to happen. I'm mad at you, Dad, or whatever. Well, in the same way, we know that if we praise God, something in us knows it's going to actually make things better, but I think we resist it for that reason. 
And yet praise reorients you to the reality of who God is. Um, I've heard somewhere, I'm sure you can correct me, but I believe it's the Puritans, at least in the English language, that were among the first to write love poems, dot, 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 to their spouses. Right? Other people wrote love poems to other people. But the Puritans actually found delight in their own spouses and began to write them poems. And you think, well, why? Well, I'm sure the, re- the recipient is excited to get a poem of praise, and wow, my ears are like cauliflower or whatever. Um, but the writer of that poem is forced to focus in on the reasons you love that person. And you begin to put words to it, and it's even though you could say, well, I love my spouse, I love my wife, my husband, now you love them even more because you spent time praising them, even in writing and hopefully later in person when you read the poem. More so with God. God is to be praised. And what, what, the psalm, what David is telling us about this psalm is he praises, part of this new song is praise of God, and he does it publicly, right? He tells other people. Look at verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. This is a person whose enemies are encamping all around him. This is a person who's very well aware of his own sinfulness, and yet he's able to authentically praise God by saying, your wondrous deeds are multitude, and then begin to name them. And it's authentic. God is good, and we must learn to praise him. But how do we do that? Well, the next thought would be part of the new song that we want to be singing of waiting is trust. Verse 3, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. I went to Japan in 1998, and um, somehow, I don't know how this happened, I actually became interested in sumo. Like sumo. How many of you care about sumo wrestling? Thank you. Yes, you're, you, yes. And the reason is it's amazing. Like, when you start to actually take a moment and learn about it, we had an actual team member who was a fanatic, so she explained the whole thing. It really begins to make sense, and you begin to see the glory, right? There's a lot of things like that in this life that you're sort of, I don't know if you're like me, you're a little bit afraid of, like NASCAR. Like, I probably would end up liking that, so I'm going to just shut it down right now. Uh, no offense to those NASCAR fans in the audience. You know, I watched Days of Thunder. I thought, I'll get into that. What's a pit stop? And now it's just like, okay, it's too much. But when something is praiseworthy, we have a sense that if we go near it, it will draw us in. And what ends up happening, and this is not unhealthy. I'm not saying this is wrong. But in some senses, you begin to find a sort of trust in it. It begins to be something you look to, right? And there is a healthy way for that to happen. But what I'm trying to explain is that, that when you trust something, your heart gets engaged into it. And of course, God is the ultimate, right? Um, Many will see and fear and put their trust in you. Verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And then look what he says, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So part of putting your trust in God is you're literally doing the trust fall into God's arms. You're saying, I trust that you will catch me. I trust that you are there. I trust that you are all I need. Now that person at the front of the line has a trust. They think when that door opens and they run in, they're going to grab some item that's going to change everything. 
Guess what's going to happen next year on Black Friday? Front of the line. Right? It's not going to meet their needs. We have a God who, if we're at the front of the line, waiting with a new song, praising him when that door opens, he is there. And you can trust in him. And he is glorious. What happens if that trust begins to be developed? We're building on ourselves. We have this new song. It leads to praise. It leads to trust. And then it does something that's become very unpopular in our world today. It leads to obedience to God. Look at verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The Hebrew actually does not use the word heart. Many of you know this. In this instance, it used more um, intestines or belly. Often you'll see kidneys. And so we tend to say thank you to translators because we know what heart means. Thank you, Hallmark. We understand. Um, As I've done some reading about trauma and the way the body holds trauma, it turns out your gut is very involved. In fact, many people who have gut issues, it can be linked to traumatic events in their lives. Our bellies, as it turns out, tells us the truth sometimes. And maybe we should leave that translation that maybe, what would it look like to go from having a law up here, like the smile law, you know, like just kind of smile, to getting something so deep in you that your belly actually churns. That's what David is saying is happening. His law, the God's law has become so enmeshed in his heart, in his bowels, that it became a part of him. It affects him. It changes him. Right? Now, we've had that experience. I think there are things, to be very fair, if you're older, you might think, you know, I used to when that thing happened in my life. It didn't bother me. Now, it makes me want to just, maybe you read an article in the paper, or you hear a joke or something. You You have this visceral response. That's good, right? Like, I've grown on some level where now it's not just some rule I follow, I feel it in my soul, in my being. Is the law of God on your heart? How do we even begin to make news of that? How does that work? Um, I'm going to do something I often do, and I'm going to butcher an illustration. The movie Castaway. So this is me doing the movie Castaway from my memory. And the reason is I actually went back to look to see if I was accurate. I didn't watch the whole movie. I think I'm close, but I'm sure I'm a little off. So just go with my memory of Castaway, not what you saw, okay? Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway is a, I believe he's the pilot. It probably messed up. He's on a plane, like FedEx. It goes down. Everybody dies. Everyone's lost. He's on a desert island. The whole movie, it's him surviving and longing to return to Helen Hunt, his wife. That's we saw at the beginning that this great marriage. I'll be home tonight or whatever. And now he's lost at sea. Um, it's a great, you remember that's the volleyball movie, like Wilson? He, that becomes a character in the movie. Well, here's the part that I'm a hazy on. I, I saw a little bit of it, but I, I, here's what, he had this little picture of Helen Hunt, his wife, I don't know her character's name, with him. And at some point he finds different cargo, and one of the pieces was a box of pastel pencils. And so on the cave wall he begins to draw her. Right? And I be- this is where my mind is fuzzy, but I like my version better. He draws her very like you would draw a face if you're not an artist, like a circle, you know, dots for eyes, all that. 
But as the movie progresses, he's able to go back and he's drawing her more and more. This is where it's, I know this isn't in the movie exactly like this, but by the end of the movie, they show his drawing. This is in the movie. And it's this perfectly drawn pastel of his wife that matches perfectly that, that, that image. And what it reveals is there's something about his longing to be with her, which is what propels him off the island in that storm to get back home, that also helps him in this situation know her better and bring her character more to bear in that cave wall. Right? How do you describe a person? Right? How do you describe someone you're close with? Do you say they're a human? They have eyes and ears. Or do you describe their attributes? The things about them that make them unique. And if you do that with people, how much more with God to say, I don't just say I worship a God, three in one. I mean, that's fine. That's good theology. But what if you began to actually study him in Scripture and love him so much that you would draw him like Tom Hanks' character to where you would know him so intimately that in your time of waiting, there's this progression of your longing to be with Jesus. Father, Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? That's where I think David is going. That he delights in God so much that the law becomes much more beautiful to him. I was going to do this illustration later, but I think it works right here. I've I've talked about this before. There's a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Um, if you're, if you're at all interested in drawing, like if you're like, you know, I'd like to draw, get that book. I promise you it'll revolutionize your ability to draw. That being said, she's famous, Betty Edwards, for a lot of the exercises many of us have done in drawing classes. But her, here's her theory, regardless of whether you believe in right brain or left brain or not, doesn't matter, that what we do as humans is we begin to symbolize things. So, for example, if I said draw a photo or draw a picture, you take a piece of paper, what are you going to do for the head? A circle. Now, I've never seen a circle head. And then you'll draw a triangle for the nose. There, nobody has a triangle nose. But somehow that feels good. And circle for eyes and a little, and then you drew a portrait. Here it is. And then maybe you threw some hair on it that looks vaguely familiar. So what she says is, what we're doing is we're turning these things into symbols. It's easier just to symbolize things and move on. And that's actually part of your left brain, she would say. Whereas what the right brain wants to do is look intently at the object. And by the way, children, when I try to teach my kids to draw, I'm always like, quit looking at the page. Look at the thing you're drawing. And something in our society says that's cheating. Like, oh, I shouldn't be drawing a real tree. I should be drawing one for my brain. No. Like, go get a picture of a real tree and learn to draw that, right? Or a real human or whatever. So, we... There's one of these exercises where you, this is the one many of you have done if you've been in our class, where you actually never look at the paper. It's called a blind contour. It comes from Betty Edwards. You take your pencil, you put it on the page, and you look at the line art, and you just draw it without ever looking at your page. You're staring so intently at what you're drawing that it's, now, to be fair, it doesn't look great when you're finished. Just FYI. But what it's teaching you to do is be more absorbed in the thing you're drawing than, it, than the, the drawing itself. And so I think what Paul is really dealing with, and get, or David is getting at, is are we enthralled with God? Are we delighting in God? Are we drawing close to God and seeing him as he really is? Are we reading the scripture not through the symbol 
of our second grade Bible you know, teacher or flannel graph. But now that I'm 42 or 62 or 82, am I reading this scripture freshly? Is Jesus, is God being revealed? Am I allowing the Spirit to illumine this or am I restraining the Spirit with my own unbelief and my own fear? And I'm just going, no, nope, that's a symbol. That's a theology. I know what that means. Move on. Is God shaping me through his word? Now, I have one. Here's where we get a little bit negative. If you drew the drawing, if you're Tom Hanks and you drew the circle and then it eventually got better, guess what necessarily has to happen? You have to go, that doesn't look right. You know what I'm saying? You walk into the cave and you go, oh, that's not at all. And you try it again and you try it again. Oh, her cheekbones are different. Oh, her eyes are more, you know. Well, guess what that means? You're going to have to become aware of your own sin, your own brokenness. And that's what David does. In fact, some scholars, it's so stark, some scholars say, oh, this is almost two psalms put together, or we can't really make a great argument for why there's a lament. But you'll notice in verse 11, he goes, during this new song, he says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For, verse 12, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Why would he say that? He has this new song. He's praising God. His trust is the Lord. The law of God has been written in his bowels. What's going on? Well, guess what? You immediately, if you have this experience, you start to see problems, don't you? And let me tell you right now, you'll be a really bad artist if you just say, you know what, stop. I'll just draw circles. It's easier. I'll just drop triangles. I'll just do little, like, Mr. Potato Head ears. And that's as good as I'm going to get. And then I'll tell people this. I'm just not an artist. Right? God wants you to grow in holiness but it's going to be painful because you have to look at your life and say and recognize while I'm in this time of waiting and I'm singing this new song and I'm praising God, I'm also realizing that I'm falling short. In fact, it's con- it happens to the same degree. The more glorious God is, the more I see brokenness, right? Then I repent and I see how beautiful Jesus is in my repentance and he looks more beautiful and then I see more brokenness. One illustration I've just used before is um, Emily's parents took over a house for an aunt. I think she had to move out, and the thing was that she was like a hoarder almost. And uh, the initial thought was, let's just tear it down, right? But they ended up coming in and on weekends cleaning it. But the first thing is you wear the masks. You put the, you know, that's, that's the beginning of the Christian life. I mean, we're just hauling stuff out, right? And, you know, and you're going to just kind of power wash the, the sheetrock. I don't know. But by the end of the process, when they were ready to sell the house, I bet they were, you know, waxing the pieces, right? It's still dirty, and it needs to be clean, but it's not the same. You, you follow me. It's gotten glorious, but, but it's not perfect, right? And so we do grow in holiness, but we're never going to be beyond the need to say, Jesus, my iniquities are more than the number of hairs on my head. Now, for some of us, that number is getting less and less. The hair. This is all right. For others, it's more hair, and you're blessed. 
So what do we do with that? Look at how David finishes. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Stop there, David. Perfect psalm. You are done. What does he do? As for me, here we go. I am poor and needy. David was holy, and part of his holiness was his willingness to say, I am poor and needy. And if that's not part of your vernacular with the Lord, then you're just drawing triangles and calling it holiness. Right? Well, I had a Bible study. I didn't murder. You know, we have these like symbols of law. And what God wants is for you to be able to say no. I want you so much. I want your law to reside in me so deep that I quit thinking about me and what I do apart from you and my entire concept of my life in this waiting period as we wait for Christ is to be lived in partnership with the Father and I can recognize I am poor and needy and that's not wrong. It is not wrong to be poor and needy. It is wrong to be self-sufficient and aloof to the work of Christ. So this season, will you allow yourself to be poor and needy, longing for what's at the front of the line when that door opens, it'll answer every question you've ever had, and we can wait with patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, for your Son, for salvation, for redemption. Forgive us for trivializing it or thinking that it'll matter one day, someday, when it matters more now. And if we even had a, just a glimpse of, this, of the new song in our mouth this morning, our whole lifestyle would change overnight for your glory. We'd be filled with peace and praise and awareness of our own brokenness and the ability to name the encamped enemies around us, but trusting in you all the while. May it be so of this congregation for your glory. Amen.